Wow, you sound good today. God is good today and every day. And his goodness and faithfulness takes us through everything, does he not? Well, good morning. I hope you're ready for tomorrow night. Woohoo! I'm ready for Tuesday morning. <laughs> well, this morning is our fourth sermon in the series, um, uh, 40 Days of True Religion. Uh, our premise has been what we do on Sunday is important, but what we do on Monday morning is just as important, if not more. And for perspective, we have been exploring what God is looking for in people who follow him, who love him. We looked in the book of Amos. Last Sunday, we looked at a couple of verses in James. James 1, 26 and 27. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Monday morning stuff. For the next three Sundays, we are going to do a deep dive into one single verse. One verse. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Contemporary English version puts it this way. The Lord God has told you what is right and what he demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. I want to start with one observation. Micah says that these are requirements or demands. Requirements are absolute necessities. You have to do them. There's no way to get around them. And so you might as well get used to having requirements and demands in life because life is full of them, is it not? You have to be 18 to get a driver's license unless you've taken the other courses and done all the training. Okay? If you want to travel internationally, you have to have a passport. It's a requirement. You have to pay your property taxes by December 10th and April 10th. You have to pay your taxes, your income taxes, by April 15th unless you do some, jump through some other hoops. But life is full of requirements. Get used to it. And there's no use making a stink about them. And so the question is, what does God require? What does God demand of us? Three things, right? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Say them with me, shall you? Now, please say them with me. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with our God. I forgot them. Oh, they were back on the back screen. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. Fairly simple, is it not? The words are clean. They're easy to remember. Huh, so you can think about them a lot. Micah makes a very clear statement about what God wants his children to do. Here's what he cares about. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Three things. Number one, God cares about us acting justly. God is absolutely righteous. 
He is absolutely fair in everything that he does. And he gives us in each person exactly what they deserve. In the Bible, this concept is applied in some very concrete ways. Care for the poor. Remember the widows and the orphans. Don't plow the corners of your field so that those who are hungry can have a, have a place to come and easily get some food. Pay a fair wage. Honest scales only. You know, no cheating, no extortion, no refusing to take advantage. Or you refuse to take advantage of the less fortunate. We are to do justice. We are, act, we are to act in a way toward other people that God acts toward us. God cares about us acting justly. Second, God cares for us, that, that cares about us loving mercy. How we treat other people is important. It's the idea of loyal, faithful love, of a patient love. It means that we love the unloving even if they don't love us back. It speaks of our obligation to care for people who do not care for us. How has God treated you this year? That's how you're supposed to treat other people. Has God forgiven you? Then forgive others. Has God overlooked your faults? Then overlook other people's faults. He says that we are to show mercy and when we do that, people will think we're actually beautiful because they don't see that very often. And he says we are to love mercy. Do it all the time. We should love showing it. He cares about us acting justly. He cares about us loving mercy. Third, he cares about us walking humbly with him. It comes from this Hebrew word that means modestly or carefully. It's the exact opposite of pride. And humility is a tricky thing because in, in, it's a virtue which if you think you have it, you probably don't. It's said that Dio Moody used to pray, Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know it. And though we can't define it very well, we know humility when we see it. And we know it when somebody else doesn't have it. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, there is one vice which no man in the world is free. Oh, excuse me, shall I? We, we can't misquote Clive. There is one vice of which, no, oh, did I say this? That might be what I said. I don't know. You could read it, actually. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when we see it in someone else. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. If you think you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited indeed. <laughs> so we generally know what these three things are. So why don't we do them? Perhaps part of the reason is that we've never done a deep dive into each one of them, that we can really understand them. And if we're going to, to let these words of Micah mark our true religion, then we're going to have to adjust our approach, I think, in the next three weeks. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to do over the next three weeks, our approach is a little bit different. First, we're going to move slowly, very slowly, through this verse. Second, we have to understand the context of this which we're going to do this morning. It's very important for us to take the time so that we understand what we're reading so that we can make an application to our life that is quite biblical and accurate. 
And third, we have to begin our, to see ourselves not like we usually do, you know? We identify with Micah. We're Micah. No, we're not. We're Israel. We are the Israelites. And unfortunately, that might make us a little uncomfortable for the next three Sundays. Because the purpose of Micah 6 is to illustrate that Israel doesn't know the only authentic way to come to God, which is through total personal conversion. If we're Israel, do we know the only authentic, real way to come to God through personal conversion? Isn't that where we began this whole study? In the, in the, the Sermon on the Mount? No. How about the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan? What did the lawyer need to come rightly to God? Total personal conversion. Israel, because of its sin, is separated from God and therefore it's unable to see and recognize the true character of who he is and what he really wants from them. God didn't want their blood sacrifices if it came without their heart. God didn't want their stuff, regardless of how generous they were going to be, if it came without their heart. See, there's only one true sacrifice that God is looking for that we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. God is, and he, he was, and he is looking for a change of heart and a change of lifestyle. He's looking that we look outward at him and outward at our neighbors. He's looking for religion with value. And that religion impacts the world. He's looking in us for true religion. In one verse, this one verse, Micah summarizes all of the great prophets of his day, Amos and Hosea and Isaiah. He connects the proper atonement for sin, which Amos talks about so much. He mixes that with, with an authentic worship, which you find in Hosea. And then he relates that to the covenant requirements of obedience in, in Isaiah. And he puts them all together in this verse. So let's begin with the context. What is the context of Micah 6, 8? If you have your Bibles, you ought to turn there. Let's see, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. I went too far. Jonah, Micah, right after Jonah. I should look it up in the pages, but you guys can, there's an index in the front of your Bible. Look for Micah. It's like fifth or sixth from the back of the Old Testament. Micah, chapter 6. Micah is a prophet from rural Judah. He's south and west of Jerusalem. He's a country boy, but he took his message to the big city, and normally he, he preached in Jerusalem. During his lifetime, Judah was ruled by a rather um, confusing bunch of kings. There are three of them. There was Jotham. He did the right thing, but the people did not. There was Ahaz, who didn't do what was right. He even burned his son as an offering to God. I think he misunderstood what God was looking for. And then there was Hezekiah, who does what's right in God's eyes. He, he was a, a powerful reformer of his day. But it seems that most of the ministry of Micah takes place during the reign of Ahaz. And those days, the nation was, was putting its trust in the religious ritual of its day. The, the, the temple of Solomon stood at the center of their worship 
And if you stood on the outside, everything looked so positive. It looked so wonderful. They had all the offerings. The priests were in place. But all of that stuff hid what was really going on inside their hearts. And so Micah sums it up this way in Micah 3.11. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. And then they say all is well. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. It's going to be good. Look at what we're doing. But under the leadership of of the religious folks, the people had become so taken up with, with the trappings of their religion that they thought that those trappings guaranteed God's presence and blessing. And yet through the prophet Micah, God makes his case. Micah 6, verse 3, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And then in verse 4, he tells them what he's done for them. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What's he done? Four things. He says, I I brought you out of slavery in Egypt. I've taken you from slavery and given you freedom. Second, he gave them amazing leadership, Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He reversed the curse. That the the king of of, uh, Balak wanted to do, that that Balaam was supposed to do, he reversed it. He didn't let them do that. And fourth, he brought his people into the promised land. Shittim is the last encampment east of the Jordan River. The first encampment on the other side in Jordan, in, in, in Palestine, Israel itself, is Gilgal. I brought you across the Jordan River. And what was your what is your response? to all of this that I have done for you. Because they were supposed to know the righteous acts of God. And instead, what do they do? Well, let's make a deal, God. Let's offer him whatever sacrifice it would take to appease him. Because he must be a God who has to be appeased. And notice that twice in the context, God calls them my people. You're my people. They were not ignorant pagans who knew nothing about God and His ways. They were covenant people. They had been born into a God-fearing culture, but they had fallen away from the standards He had set. So our passage answers, the, the question of our passage is this, how does God want His people to live in a society that's rotten to the core? Because that's what they were. And that's what we are. How does God want his people to live in a culture dominated by materialism and greed? That's where they were. That's where we are. How does God want his people to live in a society in which the Christian faith is on the sidelines, overwhelmed by secularism, smothered by by dead formalism? How do you live that way? What's God looking for? How does he want us to live? What's true religion in that setting? Micah says it, from, from the, gives it the answer from God. 
He says, first, this is what religion is. Then I'm going to tell you what true religion is. What is religion? Well, verse 6 and 7 give us the wrong answer. This isn't true religion. He says three things about just religion. Number one, God is not looking at the quality of a sacrifice. Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? What do I bring? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? They'd heard the warnings of Micah. Now they want to know what does God want from us? It's got to be something to do with the quality of the, of, the, of the sacrifices we've been bringing. What if I bring, you know, the, the very best, which is what the year old, in the prime of life. Perhaps God will be pleased if I bring him just the year old one instead of the old one that I've been bringing. But God's answer is what? No, it's not what I want. Second, God isn't looking for the quantity of sacrifices. Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Well, if it's not quantity that he wants, maybe, I mean, if it's not quality that he wants, maybe he wants quantity. I'll just bring the whole flock to him. Can I impress God with a thousand ram offering and create rivers of oil that I brought from my olive gardens, my, my orchards, and just let them flow through Jerusalem? Surely that's going to make God happy. The extravagance of my gift will please God. But God's answer is no, it won't. And then third, God's not looking at the cost of the sacrifices. Verse 7, the last phrase, he says, Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? Wow. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. That's an immoral suggestion. Apparently, Ahaz tried it, though. Child sacrifice is forbidden by God. It was practiced in the pagan nations all around them. And so the people are suggesting here that if they offer their firstborn sons, the Lord might be pleased. Maybe then he would forgive our sins. Maybe that's an expression of true religion. But the answer is no. You see, with these people, what, what they're doing is this is a let's make a deal religion. It's not true religion at all. Whatever you want, Lord, I'll do it. Just tell me. You name the price. I'll pay it. Because they actually thought that God would trade forgiveness for their sacrifices. In essence, they thought God could be bought because they were buying their leaders. Why not God too? And we do the same thing. Remember, we're Israel. We say, Lord, I'll do anything you want. Name your price. You want me to be a missionary? I'm ready to go. You want me to be married or stay single? Whatever you want. I'll be a preacher. I'll be a pastor. Whatever you want. I'll be an elder. I'll pray every day. I'll read my Bible every day. Whatever you want, that's what I'll do. I mean it, Lord. I'll do it. And we stand ready to do anything. Now, there's nothing wrong with those sentiments. They're good and noble and proper. God is pleased when we offer ourselves to him. So what's wrong? What's wrong is those things only deal with the external, the outside. God wants your heart. You can be a missionary and have a hard heart. 
You can be married or single and still have a rebellious heart. You can be very religious and yet be very far from God. God rejected every offer made by the Israelites because they had completely missed the point. They wanted to make a deal and God wanted their hearts. So what is true religion? That brings us in that context to Micah 6, 8. It tells us exactly what God is looking for in our life, in our religion. You want to have a true religion, a worthwhile, valuable faith? Here it is. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. How do you live in a corrupt culture that's secular? You do justice, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with your God. And so we're going to explore those three requirements. And we're going to begin this morning with the third, walk humbly with your God. Why? Because it's out of a humble walk with God that we will then love mercy and then we will then do justice. So we're going to explore them in reverse order, one a week. You remember Romans. We're used to doing things backwards around here. So we will dig into mercy next Sunday and the Sunday after that into justice. And so this morning I want to explore what it means to walk humbly with your God. Humility comes really from a proper understanding of the grace of God in our lives. All that we have comes from God. Everything is a gift. Nothing's been earned by us. And humility is not running yourself down. It's not hiding your talents or feeling embarrassed about the gifts that God has given you or your abilities or your talents or whatever. Whatever you have, it could have, however, been given to somebody else. And someday you're going to have to give it all back and give it account of what you've done with what you were given anyway. 1 Peter 5 says this, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. When Peter says clothe yourselves, it's a, it's a very rare word used in the New Testament. It, it's J.B. Phillips translates it, put on the overalls of humility. It describes an apron that a slave would wear as he's doing his work. It's the kind of apron Jesus tied around his waist as he washed the disciples' feet. If we clothe ourselves in humility, we won't have to get into that power game at work. We don't have to live the rat race of life. We don't have to sell out our convictions to get ahead. We don't have to be angry at the silly things people say to us. Humility enables us to be who we are in Christ. We don't have to worry about what other people think. He's my master. Which brings me back to Micah. Why didn't God accept all their sacrifices? Why did he turn them down? Because they offered everything to him except the one thing he truly wanted, was their heart. True religion is the only religion which has the approval of God. True religion, it's a religion of the heart. Outward religion is useless 
unless the heart belongs to God. He wants the real you. He wants the person on the inside. You can fake a lot of religious activity, but the heart, it cannot lie. Pride will keep all people from God because we won't say that we need Him. The Bible says that if we're going to enter the presence of God, we come with the simplicity and the humility of who? A child. There must come from within us the unabashed, unashamed cry of a little child calling out to his heavenly father, I don't want to live alone anymore. I don't want to do life by myself anymore. I need the help of God. And proud, outwardly successful types have a hard time admitting that they need anyone or anything. But how does Micah's take on true religion and walking humbly with your God hit us today? I want us to consider only one point of application. Whoa, only one, just one. I know that's pretty amazing. But we're going to dive deep, probably to a level of discomfort. So I want us to wrestle with one way to reflect humility in our walk with God. We could go a lot of directions, but here's one way we may not usually consider. How is true religion reflected in a humble walk with God? Dio Moody once said, our greatest fear should not be a failure but of succeeding at something that really doesn't matter. If we listen to our culture, what should we, we, we should be afraid of what? Our culture says we should be afraid of living an ordinary, normal, quiet life. The very clear call of our culture is that we should build our lives around ambition and success. But the danger is if we do that, we will pursue things that do not matter eternally. The danger is that we will succeed in things that do not matter eternally. To walk humbly with our God means that the ordinary, daily, and mundane acts of faithfulness and kindness that no one else sees are very much known by God. He's watching. He is keeping track. And in heaven, he will reward us for our acts of faithfulness to him, right down to every cup of cold water that we have shared with someone in need. The ordinary matters in light of eternity. To walk in humility means that we can take joy in an unaccomplished life. Shall I say it again? To walk humbly means that we can take joy in an unaccomplished life. Let me explain. As you're finger painting in the driveway as a kindergartner, or learning to ride a bike as you get a little bit older, seeds are sown into the soil of your life. Those are seeds are fertilized by songs on the radio as you grow. TV shows water them. Pretty soon they grow and they blossom in your life. And they spread the seeds 
And, 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 and these seeds are, are called by names like greatness, extraordinariness, standoutness, accomplishment. And one of the greatest dangers of growing up in PV is the trap of comparison especially as juniors and seniors begin to, to select where they're going to go to college. Because what's at issue at that point is mom and dad's ego, not what's best. We are pretty young when we begin to absorb the imperatives that dominate modern life. Be first. Be best. Be somebody. Stand out from the crowd. Rise above your peers. Carve out your name. Be anything but normal. These desires are as American as apple pie. They are orthodox exclamations of our national creed, our belief. That's what we are. In America, according to Brooks and Dunn, we dream as big as we want to. But all too often such dreams, as big as they are, become even bigger nightmares. They smother our faith. They can crush our hope. They strangle our love for Jesus. Why? Because they do not consider properly what being human is all about. Then we go off to college. We get lost in those dreams. Even in ministry, pastors can get lost in those dreams. And we all get lost in the fog of ambition and the quest for a happy life Defined by what? Trophy cases and diplomas. My grades, they got to be better than everybody else's. Oh, well, my church, we got to out orthodox the next door church. We've got to out sing them, out give them. I need those extra letters after my name to make me someone of significance. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a huge supporter of seminary education. But I stopped my education after four years of postgraduate study. Because the next degree would have included passing exams for proficiency in German and French. <laughs> because you all need to know what those German and French theologians wrote 500 years ago. How many degrees do you need? My new friend, Chad Bird, is on the back page today, wrote this about his life. can read it. <laughs> in the end, I could quote from Augustine's Confessions in Latin. Rabbi Oshaya from Bereshit Rabbah in Hebrew and Luther's Catechism in German. But I had no clue what my daughter's favorite stuffed animal was. In my accomplishments, I only succeeded to fail in the most important parts of my life. That's what I'm saying. What does it mean to walk humbly with our God? Think about it. It very well could mean that there is joy in an unaccomplished life. There is great happiness in being normal. There is immeasurable contentment that comes from dreaming small. And perhaps living a normal life is an expression of true religion.
1 Thessalonians 4.11, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, Paul says. If he were writing this to an American church instead of the church in Thessalonica, he probably would have needed a couple of extra pages of scroll just to unpack that for us. He says, make it your ambition not to be ambitious. Stand out by wearing the camouflage of humility. Dream big about living small. In other words, make it your ambition to not let your personal glory bedazzle your bio. Don't let your ambition guide your relationships. Don't let ambition declare what's important to you. Don't let your ambition declare your importance. Don't let your ambition lead you in discerning where God is to be found. Don't let your ambition help you to, to drink the Kool-Aid of our culture. To lead a quiet life doesn't mean, however, that we lower our expectations. It just means that we lower our eyes. We look next to us. We look around us. And rather than gaping upward at the next trophy or the next raise we think we're, we'll earn, we look around us at the people whom God has placed in our lives to serve. We consider their interests, their needs, as more important than our own. We shift our gaze from the next big thing to all the little things we missed when we've been mesmerized by the idols of bigger, better, bolder. And at the same time, we lower our eyes to see God at work in the underwhelming simplicities of ordinary daily life. Rather than looking at the next awesome or the next electrifying or the next unbelievable experience, we look down and we see Jesus. And what's he doing? He's crawling through the valley of the shadow of death with the brokenhearted. He's scrubbing scum off the feet of those who follow him. He's bleeding on the soil where soldiers have shot dice. Maybe we should join him. He is the Lord of the lowly. When it's time to name the greatest in the kingdom, he crowns a vulnerable, dependent child. When it's time to name the first, he starts with the last. Jesus hides himself underneath his opposite. His clothing, what do you clothe the Son of God in? It had to have been too constrictive for his eternal frame, but he squeezes into the presence of small spaces. His greatest display of grace, it fits where? Every month on a wafer of cracker. And you can hear the voice of Jesus who created the world in a preacher who's now got gray hair, maybe some dentures, and 10 years ago, fashion. Because Jesus isn't out to impress us, but to give us his love that's compressed into the most mundane things of this world. 
In the screw tape letters, the senior devil instructs Wormwood to work on the human's horror of the same old thing. That horror, he boasts, is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. That horror, however, is a perversion of our joy. The same old thing is actually the hangout for the same old God. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and a gazillion years from now. The one who sanctifies our same old lives with his same old love through his same old spirit. Rather than, than panting after the next thing which is new and novel, he, he comes to us with his same old love. And Jesus calls us to find him in the need of our neighbor. It's not going to be found in big accomplishments, but seemingly small gifts like a manger that has a baby in it or a tomb that is empty. God's glory and our joy for that glory is currently not very glorious by this world's standards. It's not found in big accomplishments, but it's found in seemingly small gifts. The brown paper simplicities of life is the way God packages those. Tiny baby, crucified Messiah, a hungry neighbor, a needy child. In him and in them, we learn that a full life is found by emptying ourselves in love and being filled with the love by the Savior because we find him in the most unexpected places in life. Walk humbly with your God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, A lot of places we could go to talk about humility and walking humbly with you. But we live in a culture that's so full of pride that I pray that we might this week think about how we can humbly walk with you. That your grace would be with us, that our religion would have worth and value. And that we might this week walk humbly with you. In Jesus' name, amen.